Hello and welcome to the Inclusion Solution Live. I am your season six host, Marisha Reese, and this season is titled From Empower to Me Power BIPOC Leadership Conversations. And in case you missed it, this season we're talking about some of the unique challenges that BIPOC leaders face, especially in dominant group spaces, and how they use their innate power, that me power, to thrive. I'm so excited to welcome my guest today, David L. Casey, Chief Inclusion and Social Impact Officer at Tapestry. In his role, David has a dual reporting relationship to the Chief People Officer and to the CEO, and has global responsibility for continuing to shape and deliver Tapestry's equity, inclusion, and diversity strategy, and oversees Tapestry's social impact programs through advocacy, philanthropy, impact, investing, and volunteerism. With more than 20 years of experience as a corporate chief diversity officer, David has served or currently serves as a board member for Orion Talent and an advisory and board director capacity for several national and local organizations, including Diversity In, he's a co-chair of the Disability Equality Index, the American Lung Association, appointment to the U.S. Secretary of Labor's Advisory Council on Apprenticeship, and the Indianapolis and Eastern Massachusetts affiliates of the National Urban League. And David is also an eight-year veteran of the United States Marine Corps, having served in Operation Desert Storm. So David, thank you for your service and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Marisha. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> and thank was, you for was, having me on. <laughs> of course, of course. I've, I've been excited about this one in particular, so I'm so happy that you answered the call and agreed to be on the podcast today. So by way of further introduction, we often like to start with our I am statements, which we use at the Winners Group quite a bit to highlight our intersecting identities and the lived experiences that we bring into the conversation. So I will model it first, and then David, I'll invite you to also introduce yourself with your I am statement. So I am a Black, cisgender, able-bodied woman, a Zennial, so that's the cusp of millennial and Gen X, so depending on the day, I may lean more one way versus the other. I'm an introvert, I'm a wife, a daughter, a sister and a dog mom. I'm a current Southerner, but I was born and raised in the Northeast United States. So David, will you introduce yourself with your I am statement? Sure thing, and thank you, Marisha. Um, I am a Black and African-American person. I am uh, a husband, I am a father, I am a cisgender, I am uh, able-bodied, I am a military veteran, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and I consider myself a global citizen, just trying to figure out how we can all get along on this tiny rock that we share. Yes, I love it. Beautiful. Thank you so much for um, sharing that. So let's jump in to some questions that I have prepared um, for this episode today. And first, you know, I want to give you an opportunity. I read your bio, you shared your I am's, but if there's anything else you would like to share as part of your story, but also including your pathway to leadership. So how you got into your leadership roles. Yeah, well, you know, as I think about how I got here, um, Marisha, the headline for me, I think, has been at every 
point in my life, I've always thought about what not what's the next job the next job I want. I've always thought about what is it I like to do. And then mm-hmm. I kind of leverage, you know, what what gives me passion, what gives me joy, what energizes me when I wake up in the morning. And also the converse, uh, you know, conversely, what are the things I know for a fact I don't want to do mm-hmm. and I don't enjoy doing, right? So I think a lot of people spend so much time thinking about what is that next job that I want. The job that you want may not even exist. And mm-hmm. that's really the way it was when I first got into the, I'll just use the term DEI space because that's most prevalently used, but um, you know, these these roles, these chief inclusion officer roles, these CDO roles, they weren't prevalent back then. That was 22, 22 some odd years ago. Um, so I knew what I like to do. I like to help people solve problems. I like to help people figure out how to navigate the complexities we have to, we encounter every single day. Uh, I like to learn and grow myself and I like to help others learn and grow. And being a corporate executive, I like to help figure out any way I can to help my company succeed and not just doing well, but doing good. So knowing that I had those things on the the, the positive side of my ledger, um, you know, it's kind of it kind of guided me to where I am today, because as I mentioned, you know, when I first started working, these roles didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. So um, I started my working life in retail. Uh, I started out as a retail associate for working for The Gap. That's where I got my mm-hmm. first paycheck. I worked okay. in retail for about 10 years. Then I went on to healthcare for about 20 years. And um, I am very happy to be back where my life started back in the uh, the luxury fashion industry with uh, with tapestry. Yes, thank you for sharing. And I really love love that uh, where you shared about, think about what, it, what, what do I like to do and what do I not like to do? Because even, and like you said, because you could create the job, right? Or you could find that role. You might be thinking of a specific title, but it may not even in reality be what you like to do. Um, and it may be the opposite, like you said. And so I think that's an important gem for our audience as well, of giving them that that idea of really taking time to self-reflect and think about what do I really like to do and what don't I like to do? And then creating that path um, towards leadership or whatever role they may they may be interested in. So thank you so much for sharing sharing that about your story. So next I wanna go, so I've been, I like to ask this particular question of all the guests that I have, but so throughout the years at the Winners Group, we often work with organizations, as you know, um, and some of our clients or, or senior leaders in the organization will talk about how they're not able to find diverse candidates or BIPOC candidates to fill the roles. And we know that's a myth. There's there's plenty of folks out there. And so I'm sure in your different experiences in different organizations and your role as um, diversity officer and different things, you probably have heard similar things from leaders that you're trying to get on board with diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what do you think about those types of statements when they say that they can't find BIPOC candidates? And how how would you respond to those? Yeah, you know, that's a great question and, and, and quite a, you know, a, I want to say it's fairly cl- complex. I mean, it's not complex in that, you know, it's something we we can figure out if we choose to do so. But mm-hmm. I, I say it's complex because I think there are a lot of factors that feed into that. The talent is most certainly there. Uh, you know, one thing that we're really pushing ourselves to do at Tapestry, and I've pushed other organizations I've worked for over the years to think about, is is it that the talent doesn't exist or do you need to interrogate and reassess how you think about talent? You know, mm-hmm. what do you think, what is the profile of the person that you think is successful? Many times that's based on the people who have already been there 
and in many cases in corporations, the people who have already been there are predominantly white men. So mm -hmm. we have talent systems, we have job descriptions, we have development programs that are built on and created for you know a, a profile of talent that has predominantly been shaped around white men. So you know we don't understand how people who bring different perspectives, you know, um, there may be cultures where speaking up is not uh, revered as 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 a you know something you should do. There are other cultures where looking people in authority in the eye may be something that you know you shouldn't do. There may be other cultures where people are used to speaking up, but when they're the only person in the room who looks like them, they're not comfortable doing that. Those are all the nuances that need to be baked into how how organizations look at talent and how they create these profiles of who they think uh, can and should be successful. So I would say, no, there is no dearth of BIPOC right. talent out there. What there is a need for is a reassessment and interrogation of the systems that we built around how we define talent and uh, how BIPOC people, how those systems are creating barriers for BIPOC talent. Mm, yes. And you'll see me, um, I know the audience may not see me because <laughs> they might be listening, but David, you might see me looking down and doing things, but it's just because I am taking notes of this, some of the gems you put out there. So um, I just wanted you to know that. So, you, I mean, you share a little bit about this, but let's go a little deeper. And yeah. what responsibility do you think organizations have to build a diverse and equitable, equitable pathway for BIPOC leadership? And why do they need to be intentional in yeah. doing so? You know, Marisha, we have talked a long time about making the case, the business case for mm -hmm. DEI, DEIB, DNI, whatever, whatever, you know, <laughs> nomenclature your organization uses for it. We have been talking about that for heaven knows how many decades. There is no need to make a business case for it. If you want to be relevant for the talent pools that are out there, if you want to be relevant for organizations like mine that are consumer facing, you need to be reflective of the talent pools that you're going to draw from and the consumer bases you're going to draw from. And guess what? They are extremely diverse and becoming even more so. I mean, most people, uh, I think, have heard the demographic predictions for the United States, if we can focus on that alone, um, that by the year 2040, more than 50% of the U.S. population is going to identify racially and ethnically as something other than white alone. And for people who identify racially and ethnically as white alone, they are already the minority in the global majority. So, you know, if we want to make if we want to keep it solely focused on the business case and not about, you know, what people may think is the right thing to do or not, I think it's got to be a little bit of all the above. But if you solely want to keep it focused on the business case, there is no more case to be made. I mean, the right. case the case is made itself. So, you know, for me, Marisha, I think it boils down to relevance. Do you and your organization want to be want to remain relevant for the shifting demographics, um, both here in the U.S. and globally? Yeah, and you know, you made me think because I'm sure that you feel in the, your 20 plus years in this work that it feels like repeating the same thing, right? We're always we're talking about staying relevant. We're talking about reflecting your consumer base, and you know, always having to bring up that business case and what do you think is the not getting through <laughs> to some of these organizations? Because I just feel like even I haven't been do I've been at the winners group I think 11, 12 years. And when I started, we were talking about that same thing. So and then so I know for you, you probably have been doing it 
And it just feels like we're just stuck at continuing to say that same thing. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts around why we're stuck there. You know, I do have some thoughts on that. Um, you know, for people who know me, and I'm, I may have talked to you about this a little bit. I think I've talked to Mary Frances, and I know Mary Frances knows uh, this this person as well. I was mentored by and, and learned a lot at the start of my career from uh, the late Dr. R. Roosevelt Thomas Jr. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in one of his watershed books called Beyond Race and Gender, he talked about um, the vicious cycle, what he called the vicious cycle. And mm -hmm. that's where, you know, organizations realize that they either have a crisis or an opportunity uh, from a BIPOC representation perspective. They go out and they recruit all these people, go to job fairs, maybe uh, set up some employee business resource groups or whatever. Um, and then, you know, they find that people are exiting almost as quickly as they join the organization. Mm -hmm. Then everybody kind of throws their hands up in the air and waves the white flag to say, hey, this doesn't work. It's too hard. We're not going to do it. They go into a state of complacency until the next crisis or opportunity surfaces itself. So he called that the vicious cycle. And uh, I think a number of organizations still struggle with that because again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, it's hard work mm -hmm. to interrogate, disassemble, reassemble mm -hmm. systems. Um, right. It's very hard work. And, mo and many of the people who are in this DE&I space as chief inclusion officers, chief diversity officers, they, they may not have the resources they need to do the work, organizations, you know, when I think about this space, this body of work, it is about systemic change. Can mm -hmm. you think about any other part of organizations where they have to engage an entire system, but don't get resources, don't get funding? <laughs> right. But the yeah. DEI yeah. space, you know, <laughs> that that's one of those spaces where, to your point, we're going to keep repeating that same cycle until we interrogate the system. But you yeah. can't do that without resources. You can't do that without leadership uh, buy-in and empowerment. And as you mentioned at the outset, I have a dual reporting relationship to our CEO and our chief people officer. So it was very clear to me that even creating this role, I'm the, I'm the first person to hold this title at okay. Tapestry. In creating this role, there was an acknowledgement of you know the um, where this role needed to be positioned in the organization to right. impact that, that kind of systemic change. Right, right, exactly. Because like you say, you're touching all the aspects of the system, not just HR, where we know many times this role sits, but for you to have that access to the CEO as well is really powerful. Um, so thank you for, for sharing, sharing that. So in your experience, whether at Tapestry or other organizations, have you seen any examples um, of best practices for organizations that are focusing specifically on BIPOC leadership development? I really have. You know, one practice that I've been a big fan of for a long time, um, you know, I think uh, most talent acquisition organizations or functions, typically we call, call it uh, relationship uh, recruiting. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, you identify and reach out to talent, and in this case, BIPOC talent, who may be happy, very well seated in another organization, but you recognize the talent and you want to build a relationship with them. So you start engaging them even before requisitions even open at your organization. You just reach out, you start, you get to know them, they get to know you so that by the time there's a uh, requisition or an opportunity available, you, you don't have to start building the relationship at that point. You already have it. You know, I've seen it happen in some cases where individuals have started building relationships with potential talent 
two years before they ever mm-hmm. make their way to that organization. And what you do is you engage senior leaders to start building relationships with these folks. And the reason I think that's important, I think uh, I was reading a study uh, not too long ago, Marisha, where it said that a good majority, maybe like 70 or 80% of senior leadership roles are filled by senior executives. Uh, they're filled by people who are already in their network. So the reason why a lot of BIPOC talents not getting invited in, they're not in these senior executives networks. So we have to help them diversify their network. When the opportunity pops up, if you're just then beginning to build relationships, that's too late because you know everybody wants to feel quickly and you're going to go with the people you know. So why not start building relationships with people you don't know even before you have that opportunity. So anyway, I, I don't want to ramble, but I think the, the whole process, this whole concept of relationship recruiting, where you you reach out to and proactively bring these people in to senior executives networks, I've seen that uh, be uh, very impactful and very successful. Thank you for sharing. I, yeah, I don't know that I've heard of that, but I, I love that idea. And you're so right. It's when when they're ready to fill the role, they're re- like they were ready to fill it yesterday, right? So it's yes, not right. about right, it's too late at that point. Um, but I really love that. And and this kind of leads into somewhat in my next question because to like you said, you already shared you have to they have to diversify their networks, right? And so um what is the what are ways that you think leaders can do that? So how can they, you know, start find, building those relationships, maybe start coaching and mentoring or sponsoring more BIPOC talent but also being able to better understand the differences. So I remember when we started off the conversation as well, you mentioned, um, you know, that a lot of the a lot of the talent development is geared towards probably white men, right? And it's it's and because that's who's generally typically at the top, and so that's what they're thinking about. They may not be considering or thinking about differences. Um, in leadership styles or differences in cultural styles that the BIPOC um, BIPOC individuals have. So when you think about this, you know, starting to build the relationships, maybe starting to coach or sponsor, um, you know, a de- say maybe a dominant group individual sponsoring a BIPOC individual. What are some of the things that they should think about or think about when it comes to those differences in leadership style or cultural differences? You know, I think as human beings we're not naturally wired to intentionally gravitate towards people who are not like us. Right. You know, that's just not a behavior that we've even weeded out of our species. We haven't (laughs) been around long enough, right? We're very tribal and that's a survival mechanism, right? Um, So we tend to gravitate towards people who are most like us across any number of identities as you started out with us identifying ourselves and identifying those intersectionalities. Most people have not identified those intersectionalities. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they tend to stick with people they already know that are are more like them than not. Um, So you have to be intentional about it. And I think some very practical channels and tools and processes that I've seen work one is, uh, you know, the startup in, of employee business resource groups, networking groups, affinity groups. A lot of folks, you know, I'll be honest, when I first started my my work in this space, I wasn't really sure of what the impact of these groups could be. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that a lot of them were focused on cultural celebrations. And mm-hmm. I think that's very important because it helps organizations build a workplace culture of inclusion. But what they also do is that they give people, they give BIPOC talent a, another channel to step up, to, to mm-hmm. be seen, 
to work across the organization, to be sponsored by senior executives. Those are some of the byproducts and benefits of these resource groups. So, you know, if organizations don't have them in place, or if you have them in place and you're not using them to leverage, you know, those opportunities, you should be. That's a very, very right. practical way uh, to, to, you know, get visibility for your BIPOC talent. Another thing that I'll recommend, and then, you know, people may think that I, I get paid by LinkedIn, but I don't. Not that <laughs> they're not a sponsor of David Casey, but I would just say LinkedIn is such a powerful, powerful tool for networking. I had an executive at another company prior to coming to Tapestry who said that, um, to your question earlier, I'm really having a hard time finding people of color for sales and account management roles, for senior account management roles. And, um, you know, within a matter of seconds, Marisha, I Googled um, and searched for some associations that are, they have setups, they have group setups on LinkedIn. It took me no less than a minute to find at least three or four professional associations targeted uh, to professionals of color, uh, showed them where those were on LinkedIn. And then his next question was, well, what do I do next? And I was like, well, join some of those groups. Start engaging, you know, uh, increase your proximity to that talent, by engaging with the folks in that group. Um, and, and, you know, I said, you know, attend events, sponsor events, uh, you know, share articles with the group, start start engaging, right? So, you know, sometimes we, we, some of the issues we deal with in this space are extremely complex. I don't want to downplay that, but many times the solutions are not a huge lift. They're not that hard. People just right. have to have the will and the skill. Right. Right. And we, like sometimes we say to us, like, it's not rocket science. Like you said, like, in a matter of fact, I was able, you were able to find exactly what he was looking for. But yeah, I, and and also to your point, some things are a little more complex, but there's easy ways to get started. There's definitely things that you could do and it doesn't take a lot. Um, and yeah, very, very simple. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And so... David, you know we're calling this season from Empower to Me Power. And um, so we switched, you know, the Empower to Me Power because when you look up the definition of Empower, it's really about someone else giving you the power. And we wanted to just talk about ways that, you know, you could take take your own power. How can you find that power within and create um create the, the space you want or the space you want to be in? And you know, even when you were talking earlier about how how you got into leadership and thinking about what what do I like to do versus a job like that's another way of right of thinking about like I have the power to kind of create in some ways like it's not as easy as I say it I could just create my job and do what I want to do but you know you're able to think and self reflect and really understand like no this is what I want to do and this is what will serve me and benefit me and so that's the path I'm going to take or that's how I'm going to look for the role for me so. So when we think about the, the me power, we're truly trying to get folks to understand how to hone in to that innate power. So I was wondering if you had a me power story or, or ways that you have honed in to that innate power that you can share with our, um, our listeners. Yeah, and I love that, by the way. I love kind of just switching that orientation to where your power comes from, right? You're, mm -hmm. not, you're not delegating it to somebody else. You're owning it. And I absolutely love that. And when you when I think about my career in this particular space, again, I've, I've worked across several industries. But when you think about uh, what I've done, every single role that I've had in leading diversity for an organization uh, has been the, I've been the first person in that role. 
mm. for all three companies now over 20 years. I was the first, wow. I was the first person to hold that role. Um, so, you know, I went into it with the mindset that I need to be entrepreneurial. I need to, to build and create and turn this into everything I believe and know it should be, right? Um, and what I've drawn on to help me get there is who I am. Because mm. in so many spaces that I travel, even to this day in 2023, in many spaces that I travel, I'm one of a few are the only people who look like me. So I have to draw on, okay, well, what are my superpowers? What are my strengths based on who I am, not based on what other people may perceive? Right. So I draw on my lived experience of growing up uh, in an impoverished neighborhood, growing up with a family that didn't have much, uh, but we appreciated everything we had. And uh, we appreciated <laughs> the power of our family. Um, you know, we had parents who weren't, you know, um, uh, highly educated formally, but we had parents who always instilled in us the, the, that that desire to learn, um, you know, not be complacent with where you are. You know, my father, we could never find any records of him having gone past the eighth grade as far as his education mm -hmm. is concerned. Mm -hmm. He's no longer with us, so I can't ask him to validate that anymore. But um, but we don't have any record of him completing, you know, any high levels. But they always instilled in us how important that was. So, right. you know, for me, it's been about it's very easy to get caught up into the, a sense of I don't belong, a sense of, um, you know, a sense of a lack of power when you walk into a space and you don't see other people who look like you. But what you have to realize when you find yourself in those situations, nobody else in that room or very few other people in that room have walked the path that you've walked to get there. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what you have. You do have something to offer. Exactly. Um, and you have your experience. You have your lived experience. You have, you know, everything that you've gone through. That's what you have to offer to the, to the conversation, to the dialogue, to the organization. So even though I may not have had, you know, early in my career, fancy degrees or uh, a big pedigree on my resume, I had that. And mm -hmm. that's what I drew on to help me own every space that I occupied. It wasn't easy for me early in my career. I'm not going to lie. It's much easier for me to say that at the age of, let's just say, more than 25 years old. Um, <laughs> it wasn't easy for me to do as a 21-year-old as it is now, but I didn't have anybody providing me that kind of coaching that hopefully somebody who may be in that place right now will hear. Right. Yes, I love that. I mean, I've been like, because you really have to take the time to think about, right? Think about my lived experiences. Think about what I bring. Think like self-reflect on that. And really like if, as long as you know who you are and what you bring, no one else can, right? No one else can tell you otherwise. But I do think sometimes we don't take the time to really do that and think about that and really be like, okay with, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable in my skin. I know who I am. I know my worth. And, and that's what we have to go in. So I, I love, I love that. So thank you so much for sharing. So, um, David, you are, as you're aware, we do have um, our Empowerment Institute that we're launching next year, which is about BIPOC leadership development. And you, we talked about it a little bit throughout, but if you want to share anything else about why you think focusing specifically on BIPOC leadership development is important. Yeah, you know, I, I do think it's important to have, for, I think there's two approaches to, to thinking about leadership development, but it all needs to start with the overarching um, understanding and acknowledgement of it's not the people, and, and I love what you all have built this into uh, the Empowerment Institute, it's this whole 
umbrella acceptance of you don't you're not broken you mm -hmm. don't need to be fixed sure there are some skills there may be some some hard skills maybe even some soft skills that will that you may need to develop we all do we all have that right. but we you also we also need to make sure that organizations understand that they need to change the system it's not you know one thing i've heard loud and clear from bipoc talent over the years is that you know I feel like I've gotten some development. I've been mentored and sponsored, but when it comes down to the moment of truth, when I put my resume in for that particular opening, I'm given all these reasons why, you know, I'm not ready for that next uh, mm -hmm. opportunity. That's the nut we have to crack. Mm -hmm. You know, many of us don't get up. I even had one, one um, uh, person tell me once that the way that leaders get ahead in their organization is that they build relationships on the golf course. Mm -hmm. Well, do BIPOC, BIPOC people play talent or play uh, play golf? Absolutely. Do a lot of them play golf? No, I've never learned to play golf. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when you, and you think that that may be one, you know, kind of anecdote, you may think that's one anecdotal story, but think about how many times that's multiplied and replicated across right. organizations. You know, we, yeah, we have development programs, but is that where the relationships really get built? It's, you know, so when, as we talked about earlier, when people have that opportunity, where are they going to go? They're mm -hmm. going to go for what they know. Yeah. And if we're not creating, if we're not educating BIPOC talent on, okay, well, if you're not out there on the golf course, how else do you do you make your way into these, these uh, uh, circles of power, circles mm -hmm. of influence within your organization? When you, it's a very much a reality, as, as we talked about earlier, you have to know how to make sense of the situation. When you walk into that boardroom or conference room, you're the only person who looks like you in that room You've got about five or six seconds to figure out what that means. Right. People going to expect from you. What are they not going to expect from you? Are you meant to represent everybody who identifies like you? Right. So mm -hmm. I think the importance of uh, programs like the Empowerment Institute, and uh, I think there's there's general development that everybody should be getting, and you need to have BIPOC faces in those places and spaces. But you also have to have uh, development that is geared towards that population to think about those situations that the majority doesn't have to think about. Have to think about. Exactly. Exactly. Well, David, 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 thank you so much for being with me today. It has been a rich and fruitful conversation, and I'm sure that everyone that is listening would agree with that as well. But I wanted to ask before I close the episode, the show out, is there anything you wanted to share in closing, Closing, excuse me, or is there anything I didn't ask or that you're like, ooh, I wish I said that, that you want to say <laughs> before I close out the show? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you, Marisha, for having me on. It's always a pleasure to have these conversations with you. I'm so appreciative of the work that you all have done and continue to do and will do. You're, you're having such an, uh, an immeasurable impact. You may not ever, ever even really know how much of an impact you're all having. So I appreciate okay. you for making space for me to enjoy enjoying in the dialogue. And I would just leave it with, you know, again, to just kind of repeating something I mentioned earlier that I think is very important. Be comfortable in owning the space you occupy because mm -hmm. no one else has walked your path in your shoes. You are the expert in that and no one else is. So if I can encourage anyone out there with that message, um, hopefully they'll take it and, and, uh, and own it. I love that. That is a quotable. And I, you might see us on your quote in the work word of the day, one of these <laughs> days too, David. But thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. 
And folks, that is a wrap for this episode of From Empower to Me Power. Please join me next time as we further explore the differences that make a difference when it comes to BIPOC leaders. Until next time, stay me-powered. Thank you. Thank you.